Hello, this is Peter Jonathan Robertson with the 76th edition of the PJ Archive. It's a phone interview I did with the American pop and country singer-songwriter Bobby Goldsborough, whose string of international hits in the 1960s and 70s included Hello Summertime, Summer the First Time and, of course, Honey. In the 1990s, Bobby created the children's TV series The Swamp Critters of Lost Lagoon, for which he wrote all the scripts, voiced all the characters and played all the musical instruments. After about 10 minutes of this interview, you'll hear his incredible impression of a frog. I spoke to Bobby in 2004 and began by asking him when he was last in the UK. Oh, it's been several years. Um, I used to try to come over once a year, but I, you know, I never in my whole career never performed over there because every time they had a tour set up, I had television or something commitments I couldn't get out over here, and I never just never can't, got to come over. I, I went over when I was playing guitar for Roy Orbison. I, I toured over there then with with Roy, but never on my own. We're talking with a couple of promoters now about uh, possibly coming over, so. I'd love to do it. And is it the same with the rest of Europe that you never got to play, or did you actually get to play some other European countries? The only times I ever did anything in Europe was for, uh, like, music uh, song festivals and music festivals in France and Italy, things like that, but I never came over and did a concert tour. I uh, regret that, but it was because I had a television show in the mid-'70s over here, it took up so much time that I just never was free to go uh, perform anywhere else. And uh, it's the same thing with Australia. We're setting up some concerts in Australia now for the first time. I never got to go over there. So we, we went over, I uh, played Hong Kong back in December for the first time and just loved it. And uh, my wife and I just love to travel now. So we're, we're trying to set up things outside the States finally. And outside the States, where have been your biggest, best markets, as it were, for your music? Well, England uh, has always been a good market for me. Uh, I, I notice when I get the uh, reports from the BMI for the songwriting, uh, I, I see this. You know, there's always just tons of airplay from England and uh, Ireland and Scotland up in there. And then I've, uh, Germany has always been, been big and France also. In fact, some of the songs I've written have been big hits over in France. There's a lot of markets that I enjoyed success in that I just never have had a chance to go perform in. I was always so busy. In fact, the last six or seven years I've been writing and producing a children's television series. I stopped performing while I was doing that. So now that I've completed that, I can I can start doing concerts again. And in those concerts that you do play, are, are you mainly playing old stuff from the 60s and 70s? That's basically what I have to do because the people that come to see the shows, they expect you to do the songs that they want to hear. And uh, obviously I do some new things in there. And uh, I even do a couple of songs from the children's series that I do. So you must get little kids turning up to your shows, the sort of different expectation to the other fans. Well, actually, they most of the little kids don't know that that's me doing the television series. They don't know where it says Bobby Goldsboro's The Swamp Critters of Lost Lagoon. They don't know Bobby Goldsboro from Joe Schmo. They All they know is The Swamp Critters. So. Was music in your blood at all? In your family, was there any history of musicians or well, singers? My, my or? brother can read music. He took piano lessons. He can play piano, but... Uh, I always wanted to play baseball. I just didn't have the desire at the time when I was real small, but what I didn't realize was that uh, I, I think I had more musical ability than I had baseball ability. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I wanted to play Major League Baseball, but as I got older, I realized uh, that a lot of the songs that I would hear as a kid, I would remember not only the, 
the melody and the lyrics, but I would remember what the violins were doing. I'd remember what the background voices were doing. I could, I would break down all those things when I would listen to them without trying to. And I would hear a song that I had not heard for 15 years, and I could remember what all the other parts in the song were besides the lyrics and the melody. So by the time I got to be a senior in high school, I was playing guitar, and I got in the band, and we started making a few bucks, and I said, hey, this this is a great way to make a living. So <laughs> I went to college for two years, and during that time is when our band started performing at all the fraternities and sororities at the different colleges, and I decided I really wanted to do that. And then the summer of my second year is when Roy Orbison came through the area, and we were hired to back him up, and we became the Roy Orbison band, and I traveled with Roy for about three years. Can I take you back again to to your parents? Can you tell us your parents' names and what their occupations were? Uh, My parents, uh, Charles and Nell Goldsboro, they were florists. The flower shop uh, has been in the family now for four generations, Shad Flower Shop. It's in Dothan, Alabama. I was born in Florida, but we moved to Dothan when I was in the ninth grade, and uh, my family has been up there ever since. Did you ever um, work in the flower shop? Did you ever want to? I never really liked it because it took up all my baseball time. I was always, but I worked in there all the time, sure, after school and on holidays. We had to deliver, my brother and I, he was a year and a half older than me, we had to deliver flowers and as we got older, we took more of a part in, in the in the business, only in the delivery part of it. But I never got into the business end of it because I was I couldn't wait to get out of there and go play baseball and find and then eventually to go play music. I was always pretty good at sports, but I, then as the as I got older, I wasn't as big as everybody else, and I didn't I didn't become six feet and two hundred pounds. I'm still five eight and one hundred and fifty five pounds, and uh, that's just not very big, not big enough to go play major major league sports. So. Uh, I realized that by the time I was a senior in high school that I wasn't going to be big, big enough to play major sports. And uh, by then, I had really gotten into the music. So I decided that's that's what I had the best future in, and it's something I really I really enjoyed. Were the places that you grew up in unlikely settings for a sort of budding music career? Well, Mariana, Florida was, this, was where I was born, and it's a small, very small town. But uh, the greatest thing about it was that they had only one radio station. And this radio station played everything. And I I grew up hearing, I would hear a gospel song, and I would hear a country song, and I would hear a Nat King Cold, and I would hear a, a big band song. And, and I didn't know there was any difference. I didn't know there were categories of music because they played everything there. And I grew up, I think it influenced my writing so that over the years I've written a lot of different kinds of things. And uh, I had I didn't stay in one bag, and that's, that's mainly because of the way I grew up hearing everything. So I think it was a big, uh, I think that was the biggest influence on my Music was hearing all kinds of music on that one radio station. And um, had you been a fan of Roy Orbison before you met him? Oh, yeah. I, I thought uh, Roy was one of the greatest talents I'd ever heard, and uh, I never dreamed that we'd have a chance to back him up. And then uh, what happened was uh, he had let his band go just before they came. To, he came to do these four concerts in our area. He found out the band was drinking or doing something, that, that things that he didn't allow in his band, so he fired the band, and... We were hired because we were the only band in the area there, and uh, to, to, we were hired to back him up, and we learned his songs as best four little guys could from Dothan, Alabama. I mean, here's, here was records that had all the orchestra, big orchestration with the violins and the voices and all that, so we learned them as best four guys could, and after the four days, we, Roy and I had just become like brothers overnight. I, I, he was just one of the greatest guys I've ever met in my life, and... Uh, we became very close, and over the next three years, I traveled with him everywhere we would go. Uh, every, in fact, when we came to England, 
that was before the big uh, English boom hit over here, and by, at that time, under a U.S. act could only bring one musician with them, and, and they were required to use English musicians. So Roy brought me over for that for the Beatles tour, and, and well, uh, that's how I got to do that tour. You say that you became very close to him. What was your most memorable moment with him on a sort of personal level? Oh, wow. There were so many. Uh, to give you an idea of what kind of guy he was, when I was doing that, uh, when I was doing the tour with the Beatles over there playing guitar for Roy, I had had a re record released over here in the United States, and it was making coming on the, the national charts. And while I was on tour over there in England, I got a call from the record company, and they said, that they wanted me to, as soon as the tour was over, they wanted me to come back to the States and start doing all the pop music shows, the rock and roll shows, American Bandstand, all these shows to promote the record. And it just really kind of scared me to death because all of a sudden, every, people would be looking at me and instead of like at Roy. And I, it never bothered me at the time to get up in front of 20,000 people with Orbison because I knew they were watching Roy and listening to him. They weren't paying attention to me. So I could get up there and play guitar and sing background and sing harmony with him. And that was fine. So I sat out with Roy. In, in England one night, uh, we sat up till 4 o'clock in the morning talking about it, and I said, I, I just don't know if I really want to do this or if I'm capable of doing this. And Roy finally told me, he said, look, why don't you go back after this tour is over, go back and do the TV and uh, do a couple of shows, and if you're not happy with it, if you don't like doing it, you can always come back and play guitar for me. In other words, go out and give it a shot, you know, because Roy always believed in me, too. That, uh, he, he always thought I could... I could do more, and so uh, I, I took his advice and came back and did it. He was just a, a wonderful guy and probably the greatest influence on me. And what sort of things did you do with him away from actually performing with him? Did you hang out together and play we backgammon or something? Constantly. Or? We would go sightseeing. We would go to, to movies. We'd go to whatever. Every time we'd play an area, we'd. Uh, Roy loved to... Roy was like... I still am. Uh, we love to go out and see things that uh, we haven't seen before. And uh, we'll, Roy would... Usually he would fly, and uh, the rest of the band would have to drive in a and pull a U-Haul trailer when we first started out with him. And then I got to where it got to where I would fly with Roy, and and uh, so we'd get to a place and we'd we'd get a car and go out and look at like Mount Rushmore or somewhere, if, what, something that we had always heard about and had never seen. And Roy was that kind of guy, and I still love to do that. And what do you remember of the Beatles? I remember just pandemonium. <laughs> <'Cause>, uh, <laughs> By the time we got over there to England, they were the biggest thing in the world, and we—I was on the tour on the bus with them for the old two-week tour. It was also Jerry and the Pacemakers and a lot of acts on there and the band, and I was on there with them for the two weeks, and we got to—I got to know them all, and they were great guys, and we just—I uh, had a great time. I was just uh, in awe of the whole thing because it was—I had never been a part of anything like that. I mean, even with Orbison, Roy would come out and uh, there would be mob scenes sometimes, but, but never anything like it, like it was with the Beatles. And any funny stories about any of them in particular, any of the Fab Four? The only thing really, because uh, we didn't get to actually hang out because we, we would travel on the bus one day and go to the next place, set up and do a show, and everybody would go to their rooms, and the next day you'd head out on the bus again. But I remember I do this fro frog noise that I've been known for here in the States for years. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. Uh, Paul McCartney actually learned learned how to do it pretty well. A lot of a lot of guys in the band for the first three or four days, I would I was putting everybody on. Uh, they would hear this noise and they could they thought it was a frog on the on the bus. And finally, they realized <laughs> they never heard the noise except when I was around. So they found out it was me doing it. And 
they all tried to do it, and Paul McCartney actually learned how to do it pretty well. So are you telling me that you're responsible for his frog chorus song? That's exactly right. And I haven't made a penny from it. <laughs> Did you contact him after he made that and sort of say, hang on a second, Paul? <laughs> I should have. <laughs> I should try to get something from it. You must have laughed when that came out there. It must have made you yeah. remember that. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you, those guys, I, in fact, when they came over to do their first American tour, the last date was at the Paramount Theater in New York, and they were asked by the promoter, who they would like to have on the show with them. They could get anybody they wanted, and, and they had a such a eclectic group of people because Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet were on the show. Uh, the Brothers Four, just different group people that you wouldn't think would be on the Beatles show, and they had me come on and do the show. Nobody ever heard anything I sang because from the time the people got into, into the theater until they left, it was just continuous pandemonium, and nobody could hear anything. So... I could have sung different lyrics and nobody, you know, to the song and nobody would have known it. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever have any conversations with John Lennon? Just brief things on the bus, like uh, talking about, you know, they would ask me a lot of things about the states. They'd never been over here and uh, asked me about different places in the states. And a lot of the, well, I remember one of the things that John would ask me about were some of the monuments over here, things like Mount Rushmore and things like that the states are known for, the Grand Canyon and things like that. So he was interested in things like that. And, uh, and I was uh, I was really thrilled when I, when I found that they they asked for me to be on the show in the Paramount. And then I went, and when I got there, there was just so many people and so much uh, security. And I figured, well, they're up there, we're up on the fourth floor of this built of the Paramount Theater and uh, in their dressing room. And I figured, well, I'd like to say hello, but I haven't seen these guys since I was over in England, and and I probably couldn't get up there. And then I saw the road manager happen to walk out of the elevator and saw me and said, Bobby, how are you? I said, I'm doing fine. He said, you want to go up and see the guys? I said, well. Can I? And he said, sure. So we got on the elevator and we went up and I walked in the dressing room and they all came over and said hi and we talked for a while and they were just like they were over on the, on the buses over there. So they, oh. were, they were all great guys. Do you have any memorabilia of your time with them? Any photographs, any autographs? I nothing. I didn't have a camera. You know, then we didn't, we didn't carry ca the cameras we had were not that great anyway. And I didn't, that's just something I never did. And I regret that because uh, not so much that I would have things to go out and, and try to sell, but but things that I would I would love to have some of the some of the uh, some pictures from the times I was over there because those those were great times in my life. But I don't have anything. I read that you and Roy Orbison nearly died in a plane crash. Is that true? I nearly died in three different ones that were malfunctions of planes and things. But Roy and I were flying from um, Vancouver to Vancouver Island. It was just which is a short, very short trip. We took off in bad weather, and it was really windy and, and started snowing, and, and we were it was really touch and go there for a few minutes, but uh, we made it down. In fact, we, it was so bad that on, on the way back, Roy said, I'm not about to get on that plane again. We'll take a, we took a ferry back, and it took us a, you know two or three hours from where we were, but uh, I wouldn't say we were nearly killed, but at the same time, it, was, uh, it wasn't, wasn't anything I'd want to do again. And you said you had two other incidents as well. Oh, yeah, well, I, that was uh, not with Roy. I was on a... Uh, I was going to do what they had over here. I don't know if they had them in England. They had record hops where the disc jockeys would be there playing the records and, and a, a singer that had a new record out would come and do the, and he'd get up and do a lip sync to his record. And that was called a record hop. And then you, and I, I had uh, flown, I was flying from Pittsburgh to Wheeling, West Virginia with a couple of other singers in a little one single engine plane. And we took off in a snowstorm and this was a little light single engine plane. And I, and I was, I wasn't. I didn't have sense enough then to say I'm not getting on this plane because I figured maybe they may not play my record again. <laughs> <laughs>
so I get on the plane, and, I, and I'm in the fifth seat. It really wasn't a seat. I was just in the back end of this plane, huddled up. And the minute we got up in the air, I mean, then the, uh, what happened, the fuel line, uh, oil line burst or something on the plane, and the, the pilot was hollering mayday, and we couldn't see. We, he didn't know where we were. He had lost all his controls, and we were, we, and we were in the mountains of West Virginia by then. And uh, so I figured this, this is it. And I was wondering who was going to get top billing in the paper the next day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was, I, was, uh, I was really, it's one of the scariest times of my life because you're, the plane is coming down under his own power. Uh, he couldn't keep it up, and we were didn't even know where we were, and we tr- we were trying to make it to this little airstrip and somewhere in a little airport well outside West, uh, Wheeling, West Virginia, and we actually made it down. We were coming on over the treetops. We could see the treetops from the light of the plane flashing on them, oh. and we were just about to hit the trees when somebody hollered, there's the lights, and we saw this little airstrip. It looked like some people had lined up with cigarette lighters. It was so, <laughs> so oh. small. Nobody could even speak when we got out of the plane, and we got a, ended up taking a cab, a taxi that night, and went and did the did the record hop. <laughs> Bobby, what year was that? Oh, that was uh, '64. '64. Right. When was the third incident you referred third to? Third incident, probably about in the same year, because I was uh, I was the opening act for the Rolling Stones on their first tour over here, and uh, we were driving in on a bus, and they met us outside of town and said that they, that everybody was at the airport to greet greet us, mainly to greet the Rolling Stones. They probably didn't care if I was on there or not, but <laughs> they uh, asked if we would go out to this little airstrip and get on, on these three little single-engine planes and just fly over the river and land at the airport so that the people could be there at the airport to greet us. And so we figured, well, it's only going to be in the air about 15 minutes at the most. So we did that, but when we got on the plane, I was on with Mick Jagger and the pilot, and in the pilot, co-pilot seat was, was Brian Jones. I hate to say, I don't know if he was on something or what, but he started clicking off the, all little switches and say, what does this do? And started messing with it. And the pilot said, no, don't touch that. Don't. And the plane starts dipping down. And all I could think to do was I just grabbed him around the neck and I said, if you touch another button, I'm going to break your neck. Cause I'm, I mean, I'm thinking he's going to kill us here. So the pilot gets everything switched back on and we're, we dip, get back up, made a routine landing at the airport. And I was scared to death again. I'm thinking, what is it about me and getting on these little planes? And I don't, I haven't been on a little plane since then. Really? <laughs> no, not these little ones. I just, just they just scare me. Oh, so you've never had your own jet like Elvis and people? Oh, I've been, I've, I've chartered them. I never owned one. I didn't see the point in owning one, but uh, I've leased the, the jets. But those are, those are not little single engine like propeller planes. I, I, I love the Learjets and things. We've, I've taken those many times, but uh the little single engine things I, I just don't like. Yeah, don't blame you. When did you first think in terms of a solo career? Well, the little band that we were in right before we got with Orbison, I was singing for the group, and we were uh, we were we were going to Birmingham, Alabama, to a little uh, up above a blood bank. Actually, <laughs> there was a little recording studio, the only one within 200 miles of where we lived. So we found this place, and they said we could come record there. And I was writing some songs there, so. We, we made a few recordings there, and, and uh, a producer in New York named Jack Gold heard the things and came down and signed me to a recording contract. Uh, not the band, just me. And I, you know, and then I didn't hear from him for a year, and I figured, well, that's the shortest career in history. <laughs> I'd, I'd forgotten about it, and one day I got a call from him, and he said he found the song... He wants to bring me to New York to record it. And I'm thinking, New York City, I've never even been there, you know. So 
he brought me to New York, and I recorded, and I hated this song. It was a song it had a recitation in it, and uh, it was about a blind soldier coming back from the war, and he couldn't see his kid, and the song was called Molly. And I absolutely hated this song because I just didn't think it was right for me, and I, I sounded like I was nine years old doing my recitation on there, and I was supposed to be old enough to have a son coming back from the war, so I just never really liked it, but it actually made the, the national charts, got into the 80s or the 70s or something. But I only did it one time live and, and at a record hop, and after I did it one time, I said, I'll never do this thing again. Still with Orson at the time, and I stayed with him through that. And finally, one of the songs that we cut was a song I had written called See the Funny Little Clown. And yeah. that was the song that became my first national top ten hit. Top ten hit, And that's, that's the one that was coming on the charts when I was with Roy in England. And uh, that's the one they wanted me to come back and start doing all the American bandstand shows like that. These days, image and appearance seem to be all important in gaining pop success. What were the necessary attributes then? You know what? Until the big English boom hit, I think still everybody, even with the Beatles, I mean, it was the clean-cut, all-American boy type, type look. But I think guys like the Rolling Stones and a lot of the groups like that kind of changed that. And I think for the better, I think, you know, it, 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 I mean, nowadays it, it's kind of going back to where you got to look the part to, to have a hit. But uh, there was a long period of time where I think the music was more important than what you look like. I think, unfortunately, now it, it's gone back to where you, you have to look like a, a teen idol again. And, but that's, that's just the way the, the business is. Did people in the pop, you know, the sort of management side of things ever try to change your appearance or even your name? There was a guy that wanted to change my name that was going to sign me to a recording contract just before Jack Gold signed me. And he said, Goldsboro is not a, a good name to have as, a, as an entertainer. It's, it's just not, a, not the right sounding kind of name. And I said, why not? He says, well, it's just not. And he wanted to change my name. Are you ready? To Bobby Vant, V-A-N-T. I said, why? And he said, well, there's Bobby Vinton, there's Bobby V, and uh, Bobby Vant. It just has that sound. That's what people <laughs> need. That's what people look for. Goldsboro's not a commercial name. So, thank goodness the other guy signed me to the, the contract, and I said, well, do you want to change my name? He says, why? I said, I was just checking because the last guy wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned the, uh, the Rolling Stones uh, sort of rebellious type of image. Did you ever fancy that yourself? Because you sort of swiftly got a reputation as a sort of singer of sensitive songs. I guess I, because I grew up in the, the era of watching Frankie Avalon and Fabian, and, uh, and then when I got with Roy, Roy was always... Uh, clean cut and Roy was always uh, you know his, his suits were, were pressed and things like that and that's just the way I got into the business and I, I felt more comfortable doing that I never got uh, I was never happy with for, uh, personally with, with having a scruffy look a three day beard and things like that so I just uh, I just kind of stayed with, with what I what I had done to start with I just stayed with it Did Mick Jagger or Keith Richards um, have any memorable moments with you did they say anything to you you'll never forgotten <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that I remember uh, that was a little bit, little bit different was on one of the shows, Mick Jagger was up singing, and this girl reached out and grabbed his foot, and uh, I remember he just kicked her, because, I mean, it was just as much of just an automatic reaction as anything, but he just kicked her right back into the audience, because I don't know if he thought she was trying to going to pull him off the stage or what, but I was standing in the wings watching that, that that's just something that stood out in my mind, but... Uh, I, I got along great with all those guys. We we, we were on a bus together. For, we were only together for like a week, and uh, we played. But the last place we played was Carnegie Hall in New York, and uh, 
I had always heard about Carnegie Hall growing up, and I never dreamed I would actually play there, especially with the Rolling Stones. So it was a it was an experience. And when you first heard the uh, the song Honey, did you sense you could make it the sort of smash hit that it became? You know, I, I really didn't. Uh, a friend of mine, I don't know if you remember Larry Henley, who sang with the New Beats that had uh, bread and butter. Right. That record. I like bread and butter. <laughs> I like toast and jam. Oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> well, that was Larry Henley. He was a, in fact, he wrote uh, Wind Beneath My Wings uh, oh, for yeah. my publishing company. Anyway, Larry had heard this record that Bobby Russell had produced on Honey with Bob Shane of the Kingston Trio. And he came by my apartment I had, and I was building a house in Nashville, so I was, had an apartment up there, and Larry came by and said, you got to come hear this, this record that Bobby Russell just got. So I went over to this studio where they had it and they played it and it really didn't do anything to me I just, because it was really uh, overproduced it had all these drums in there and so much going on that you really it just wasn't a sensitive type song to me and I, it just didn't do anything for me and a couple of weeks later Bobby Russell came up to where Bob, Bob Montgomery who was my co-producer we were listening to different songs so he had Bobby Russell come up to play us something some songs and Bobby played three or four songs but they were more what we called teeny bopper type songs and I said, I said, don't you have something that's a little more adult? Or what about the song like, like the one you did with Bob Shane? Can you play that? He said, well, well, that's coming out next week on a single by Bob Shane. I said, well, just play the song. And and he played it with a guitar, and it just completely blew us away. Then we we said, that is that doesn't even sound like the same song I heard. And so we cut it for the album. And uh, we the very first cut, the musicians came back in the in the control room to listen to the to the playback. They've never done that, and uh, so we thought this is this is incredible. This is a, this is a hit record. So we went out and recorded it again because that was the first take, and the second take was just like the first one. So so we called Bobby from the studio, Bobby Russell, and said we just cut a monster with this. We, we had no idea it was going to be as big as it was, but we thought we had a big hit record. He said the Shane record comes out is just coming out this week. He said give us a couple of weeks with this one, and if nothing happens then you can come out with it. I mean, we didn't, once his record was out, we could have come out the next day with it, but we waited for two weeks. And luckily for me, not, not, a, not a lot happened with the Bob Shane record. And when mine came out, it was just uh, like an instant, instant hit everywhere. Did you talk to Bobby Russell about the lyrics? I mean, was the story of Honey a true one? And, and what did she die of? Most of the song was true about his wife, except she had not passed away. But a lot of the, he wrote, he based the song on things he had seen her do. She had planted the tree and she, uh, Cried, at, uh, cried over TV shows, and she wrecked the car, and things like that, and uh, everything in there it was or were things that he had, that he had seen his wife. They related to with his wife. You know, the ending he he added to just I guess make the song more more memorable. Was his wife called Honey? No, it was a natural. I think you know it was, a, it was the perfect the perfect name and the perfect song. I think. And in the song, what did she die of? It doesn't say. It never says. What and, do you uh, think? Was it cancer? So many over the years, I've been asked that, and uh, I've get I get emails to this day. Uh, what did Honey die of? And, it, and, it, and it, Bobby didn't feel it was important, you know, what what she passed away from. Uh, so he didn't say anything about it. Presumably, the first time you read that, you must have been very moved. And have you always been moved since, or has it just become just something you just sing? Every time I sing the song, it hits me because, uh, and I've sung this song thousands of times, but I also try to remember when I'm doing a concert that this is the, and, I, and I, that's one thing about, you know, you were asking me about the, show, the songs I do in the show. I try to do the songs identical to the way they were on the record because one of the biggest disappointments I've had in music is going to 
concerts and hearing the, the singer do the song totally different because he's tired of doing it the way he originally did it. And I think the people come to hear it done a certain way. And if you don't do it that way, they're going to be disappointed. So every time I do the song, I try to remember that most of these people out in the audience have never heard me sing this song live. And I yeah. try to do it as close to the original as I can. Oh, that's and, great. And, still, and by concentrating on it like that, it, the song, I think about those lyrics every time, and it really it moves me every time I do it. And over the years, you must have got a lot of letters from people who have lost loved ones, assuming that you wrote that song. It is amazing. You have no idea how many letters have come from people who lost a loved one and played that song at the funeral because it happened to be their their, their loved one's favorite song or it had special meaning to them. And, and, you know, I get four and five page letters that people pour their hearts out to me. And that's what's amazing about music. They're, people will pour their hearts out to you having never met you, but they feel because you sang a certain song or you wrote a certain song that, that you can relate to them, and uh, it's amazing that, that, that to this day this still happens. Do you remember the famous DJ here called Tony Blackburn? Oh, sure. When his wife left him, he played Honey over and over on the radio, and he got told off for it because it just went on and on. He wouldn't <laughs> stop playing that record because he was missing his wife so much. Were you aware of that incident? No, I wasn't. <laughs> you know, what, what's funny is... Uh, some of these lists that you see on the on the uh, internet, I saw one list that said the 100 all-time worst songs, and Honey was in there. And oh. another list said the 100 all-time greatest songs, and Honey was in there. <laughs> it's amazing that the music it touches some people sometimes the wrong way, but uh, it's just, that's the that's the great thing about music. I hear a song that I heard when I, maybe I was nine years old, and immediately I'm back to when I was nine years old. I remember everything I was doing at the time. How have you felt about the extent to which Honey has become kind of your theme song, as it were? That's fine with me. I think a lot of rec uh, recording careers the, the, have, have lacked the one signature song. There are a lot of people who had more hit records than I did, and but they never had the monster hit and never had that signature song. And that's, that's why I'm, I'm extremely grateful for Honey, even though personally I think Summer the First Time was a better record and a better song. Maybe I'm prejudiced because I wrote. Because you wrote that, yeah. <laughs> Personally, I think of, of all the records I made, I think Summer the First Time was the best record I've ever made, best recording. But but I think Honey, the minute you say my name, and if somebody's familiar with my name, they'll say Honey, first of all. They remember Honey. Yeah. And that's fine with me. Because every summer here in the UK, you know, um, Summer the First Time and Hello Summertime get played endlessly because they're lovely summer records. Um, we also remember... Hello Summertime is a Coca-Cola commercial. Sure. Um, you were aware of that, presumably. Yeah, in fact, they contacted me to do, about, about doing the commercial and singing it for, you know, for, for the national commercial over here, so I did, and then we got a call from the record company here, United Artists, it was United Artists at the time, and they called and said that Hello Summertime is just a very, it's very big in, in, in England. And I said, what do you mean? They said, well, the, the, the commercial is so big that they're, and it was the record company in England, the United Artists, that, that said, could you go in and record this, do li different lyrics? So we contacted the writers of the song, which was a commercial, the commercial writers of the, that had written this commercial, and they said, yeah, you can rewrite it, but you don't get any of the writers royalties. <laughs> and I said, well, okay, so we don't get any writers. So we rewrote the song and released it, as a, and it became a hit. 
that was the way that had happened. It was that was thanks to England. So you sang on that version as well, the the commercial version. Oh yeah, yeah. Huh? I remember the words "ice cold coke on the back of my throat." Right. That was fantastic. <laughs> And some of the first time, can you tell us about the story of that song, of, of writing that song? Well, that's probably the second most asked question I get on uh, emails and things is, did you write some of the first time from personal experience? Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, I always say it's none of your business. <laughs> but actually, it was loosely based on something that happened to me. It wasn't, what happened to me wasn't nearly as romantic <laughs> as the song is, but I started writing this song, I was out doing a television show in uh, San Francisco. I just started playing this guitar riff. It was kind of a haunting thing. And so I, then I went down the next day to do the Tonight Show, the Johnny Carson Show. And I was backstage waiting to go on, and I started. I had this melody running through my head, and I started doing this guitar riff. And finally, I, the idea came to me. And I, I guess uh, uh, when I got on the plane the next day to fly back to Florida, I already had the song written by the time. I couldn't wait to get in and, and start playing it and so I wouldn't forget anything I had completely written it by the time I got back and I just really felt it was the best song I'd ever written because I I concentrated on every lyric and and that's why another thing when I when I we as you remember on the, the when the record starts these high violins are yep. all you hear in the, in the ocean because I wanted to give the the feeling of heat like just those there was something about those high strings that just made it sound hot to me you know and I had the ocean crashing and and so I wanted the opening lines to be uh, to tell about how what a hot, humid day it was. So when I went to the record company and played this record, I thought I said this is the best record I have ever made in my life. We go in there and played it for them, and I'll never forget the the head of the record company said, "That's a great record. That's great. This is going to be a smash." He says, first thing we got to do is take that intro out and take out the instrumental in the middle because it's too long." Oh no. And I fought him for, for a week on this because I said, if you take out the intro and you take out that big, the big instrumental where the, the waves are crashing, I said, you're going to destroy this record. I said, you, I don't care if it's too long. I said, they, if, they, if it's a good record, they're going to play it. And I finally convinced them not to take that out because they were going to automatically take off the intro and the, and the instrumental just to shorten the record. A few minutes ago, you hinted that it was based on a personal experience. Can you tell us about that? No. Because <laughs> your wife wouldn't approve. It, it was it was so long ago, and it was and the age differences were a lot different than what what the uh, they say in the song. Even did you choose the song ages because it just fitted uh, rhyming wise? I felt that it was still the boy in the song wasn't too young to where it's gonna somebody's gonna say, "Well, oh, I can't believe you do this," but there had to be an experienced woman and a. A man, and I mean, especially in this day and age, even 17, you figure, ah, you know, this guy by 17 nowadays, that's nothing new. But at the time, I felt the ages just, plus it, it, everything, that was another thing, that the ages, when I sang them out to myself, those are the ages that came out. Even the word 17, it phrases well. Uh, 18 doesn't, there's one syllable, two, two, not <laughs> enough, you know, and uh, 17, it just, it just, it was seemed like the perfect perfect age to put in there. Did you get complaints about the lyrics and um, the song? Did you get so religious people saying "tut tut"? You shouldn't be writing about things like that. Now, the only thing I got something that was told to me from the record company uh, out in California. They said that a, a couple of radio stations had said they de they decided not to play it because it was too risque. And I said, 
I tried to write it in a way that nobody's going to say this is risque, uh, and only a couple of stations, and uh, you know, because most of the, all the major stations played it, and, the, and I did it on American Bandstand, so they obviously didn't think it was too risque. So I think it was. You know, I, you're always going to find if somebody doesn't want to play a record, they'll find a reason not to. <laughs> they'll never tell you they just don't like it. They'll say, "Well, it's it's too pop, or it's too country, or it's too fast, or it's too slow." They'll find something wrong with it. Hmm. So you didn't get sackloads of mail and oh no, from no, old ladies from fan mail or, or parents, nothing like that. Never. I never got one detrimental record, uh, a letter from anybody. What kind of fan worship did you get? Did you get lots of screaming women chasing you in, in your hotel wardrobes and stuff? Well, I think anybody that's out there in the in the public eye that's on television, especially during the years that I was on TV every week for 52 weeks a year for three years straight, you're going to get that. Uh, no matter who you are or what you look like, there are going to be people after you. I mean, I remember... I remember seeing a, a blonde bombshell on TV one time saying how sexy she thought Henry Kissinger was. Blimey. Thought, if Henry Kissinger was selling shoes, this she wouldn't give him the, the time of the day. So I've always heard that power is, is sexy. Uh, so if Henry Kissinger was a powerful man, maybe that made him sexy. But I can't believe this blonde bombshell would think he was a sexy man. Uh, so I think... No matter who you are, if you're on television and you're on on the radio all the time, you're going to get people doing that. But uh, that's just that just goes with it. So, what's been your most memorable fan moment? <laughs> well, uh, some we can't talk about. But uh, I went to in a club in in uh, Arkansas that I went to play, and I'll never forget the guys in the band and myself. We we get to the place late afternoon to to set up our equipment and go in and do a sound check. The guy opened up the big lock on the chain lock on the outside. Oh, I'll take it back. He opened the big steel door that was locked, goes inside, and there's a chain on the door, the double doors, with a lock. He unlocks that. We go inside. He unlocks the door to the dressing room, and inside the locker in this dressing room, there was a girl in there. And I'm thinking, how did she get There were three lights. She had to have spent the night in there. <laughs> in the last, or, or they said we had had a concert there in a week. Nobody knows how she got in, but she was in. She was a fan and had gotten in there in my dressing room. So these are the things that I don't know. These are things that you remember. They're funny things, you know. But because uh, we to this day we don't know how she got in there. Have you ever had a fan club? And is it still going? Oh yeah, we had especially during the TV show. We had a huge fan club, and it just almost got out of hand because it's just then there was no internet. So. Maybe it would have been easier with emails, but uh, the, the letters and the things that would pour in, because when you're on TV every week, you're going to get that. Uh, and the fan club was huge at the time, and uh, over the years it just got a little overwhelming, and they had to pretty much disband it because the people running it, it just took too much time. Did you think your hit-making days would go on forever? And, and why do you think they stopped when they did? Why do you think that the, the hits dried up when they did? Well, one of the things I had always said at the beginning of my career, when I would be asked, how long do you intend to sing, and you're going to always I said, as long as people want to hear me sing and, and, you know, buy the records, I'll keep doing it. I said, but what I eventually want to do is write children's books and children's stories. And that finally, in the uh, early 80s, I had put so many, there were so, every, I had the, one of the first stories I ever wrote was, a, was called Snuffy, the Elf Who Saved Christmas. It was a children's story about Christmas. And 
every year around Christmas time, I'd say next year I'm going to take the time. I'm going to get this thing done. I'm going to do a. I want to do an animated video with this thing, and then we'd go out on the road, and I would do, be doing television and, and uh, recording, and all of a sudden it'd be Christmas again. And I said, Oh man, and I forgot. I didn't do anything about Snuffy. Next year, and I kept putting this off year after year. So finally, in the early '80s, I said I told the band. I said I'm not going to book anything else for the after. When we six months down the road, we're going to play all the concerts, and I'm going to take some time off. It may be a year, it may be longer, but I'm going to do these children's stories that I've been writing and wanting to do for so long that I put on the back burner. So finally, I did that, and uh, it took so much longer than I thought it would to find the right animators and to put the things together because I had never done anything like that. And the more I got into it, the more I enjoyed it, and I couldn't. I and the last six months I was on the road. I would think, I can't wait to get back and work on these things. I, I'm, it's not that I don't enjoy the performing, but I want to do this more. And so I finally finished all the shows that were booked. I told the booking agency not to book me anymore. And uh, I started doing these children's things. And I since have uh, 12 children's books out. I had did four animated videos before I did the Swamp Critters uh, television series. Before you went into all that and, you know, you, you set up your publishing company and you did your TV show and stuff, um, were you worried about, you know, ending your music career? And you know, a lot of the people, a lot of artists just can't cope with it and they end up in sort of drink and drugs and everything. But you've been I under... Never, you know what, I never, to, I guess to this day, I'm still amazed that people will pay money to hear me sing and perform. It's hard for me to accept, so... I can't say I didn't take it seriously, because I did, but at the same time, it lasted so much longer than I ever dreamed it would, uh, selling the records and being on television and things like that. I always felt that I was a better writer than I was a singer or performer. And I, fig I, I felt if all of a sudden tomorrow, for whatever reason, they say, you're never going to be on TV again, you're never going to be heard on the radio again singing, I, I would have said, well, so I'll write. I can, I can enjoy writing and enjoy my life. And that's what I'm doing. And uh, I only started back last December because I finally finished. It, it's taken me six or seven years to do the Swamp Critters of Lost Lagoon because I, I've written 52 episodes. I do all the scripts I write. I do all the voices. I play every instrument. And I it takes me six months to do just the soundtrack for 13 shows. And then it takes us weeks to go in and film those. And it takes a couple of weeks to edit those shows. And we've done 52 over, the, over six or seven years. And... So I, I stopped performing during that time, except for some benefit things I would do. And now, now I finally finished the series, and we went over to Hong Kong to do the concert in December, and I absolutely loved it, enjoyed it. It was like it was all new again. So now we're playing concerts again, and I'm having a ball. Do you feel that doing this work for the animated programs and so on, writing the books, that that's the perfect outlet for your obvious crea creativity within you that used to use music and songwriting as an outlet? Uh, absolutely, because one of the great things about the series, first of all, I don't have anybody that co-owns it. I own the thing, so I don't have anybody saying, well, I think you should do this, or I think you should do that. I'm free to, to write about whatever I want to, to write any kind of songs I want to, and it goes back to what I said growing up, I heard all kinds of music, and a lot of times during my record career, I wasn't able to do the songs I wanted to do simply because the record company says, well, people don't want to hear you do a blues song, they don't want to hear you do a uh, rock song now, they, they want to hear you do songs like Honey, and I said, how do you, I said, I had a lot of hit records before Honey that were up-tempo, Little Things, It's Too Late, Voodoo Woman, you know, these were up-tempo songs. And the record company, all they wanted to do was put out another ballad, you know. So 
I wasn't able to do a lot of the things I would write. I would get frustrated. I couldn't even record them. If I did, they wouldn't want to put them in the album and things like that. So with the Swamp Critters, I can go in there and do a song about blues, a blues show, and do nothing but old blues things and play the play the dobro and the harmonica. And then I can do a song about country music. I can go in there and do a, write all country songs. Then I did a, I even did a classical show for the uh, for the Swamp Critters where I did some classical violin things on there. So. It's, a, it's an outlet for me to, to be creative, and I don't have to answer to a record company head. <laughs> you know, so, so I, I yes, definitely, it's it's, uh, it's provided me an outlet to, to to be creative. It's been a lot of fun to do. It's been the most work I've ever done in my life, but it's uh, also been the most enjoyable thing I've ever done. May we know if you are ever in danger of going down that slippery slope of drink and drugs that so many music stars fell down. Never. I think the biggest reason, uh, well, two biggest reasons. One was my, the way I was brought up. I was brought up in a very God-fearing family. My my parents, uh, they didn't they didn't drink and uh, do anything like that. My brother has never gotten into that. Uh, I was also probably the biggest th- reason was people like Roy Orbison who didn't do that. And I, the people I grew up with and and got into music business with the guys in my band, nobody did that. We just weren't around people like that, and when I say people like that, people who were doing that type thing, uh, who were doing drugs, I was never around anybody, and never really even tempted to do that. I didn't go to a lot of parties, I just wasn't a partier kind of guy, where after a show everybody goes out and parties till four in the morning, because I think that's where you end up subjecting yourself to something that, you know, the next day you're going to be sorry sorry for, so I, I was never even tempted to do anything like that. So you didn't even smoke a joint with Mick and Keith? Never. I never. I don't know that they were doing anything back then. You know, I don't think that was the thing to do back then. I, maybe it was, but I mean, I guess drugs have already always been around, but not, not the people. I mean, when when I would go to see a, when you think about the people that I I started out with Orbison, the people that were having hits were Bobby Vinton, Bobby V. Uh, these are people who never did anything like that, as far as I know. And uh, the guys in their bands didn't. They were all. It was. You could say everybody was clean cut. Well. I, I, I don't I don't regret not being clean cut. I mean I think it's uh, kept me healthy and uh, I'm I've, I'm happy with my career and I'm I'm enjoying life. So I never had to resort to anything like that and I never got to the point where I said, well I'm not selling records or nobody wants to see me so I'm gonna go drink or you know I just <laughs> never. I, there's too many other things that I like to do. My outlet is writing and I don't so I don't ever get down so down that I need to to go drink or something uh, which other celebrities did you have on your tv show oh we had uh whoever was current at the time uh we i mean i had a lot of friends of mine jim neighbors mac davis kenny rogers uh roger miller uh was a good friend and he came on the show every year and uh sergio mendez uh henry mancini just so many down the list i, c- I could go on and on you know, we were very fortunate to get a lot of the people that we got on there and in fact we did 70 78 shows did you ever fancy doing any acting yourself? I was approached a few times early in the career and all that. Even back then, I said I would rather write a song for a movie than act in one. Even though I'm on stage, I'm very extroverted. I'm, I'm still, I think, kind of a shy person, and it'd be tough for me to get up and act and with cameras and all of that. So having to do something that I'm not used to doing. Which has given you more satisfaction, having hit records or having hit TV shows? Even animated ones. I'll tell you, I, I have to be honest with you, I, I would probably say it's a tie because right now I've gotten, the things that I've done with the children's shows and the children's books have given me so much satisfaction and I feel like 
years from now, when I'm long gone, I'm sure that Honey and, the, and watching Scotty grow and songs like that will still be played, but they won't be played as much as they are now. They'll become oldies but goodies and very oldies but goodies, but I think so, uh, things like Swamp Critters and Easter Egg Morning could still be around because when I, when I do a show like that, I try to do it without... I don't put any slang that's current. I don't put any moves that would be... I don't do any Michael Jackson moves, for instance, because that would already be dated on there. And, you know, in years from now, you couldn't see anything like that. They're going to say, boy, this must have been shot in the, in the 80s or the 90s or something. I try to keep, do what... I think that's one of the reasons Disney, with, with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, you can go see that, and it looks like it could have been done yesterday. How often do you get recognized in public? It depends. You know, if, especially around my hometown here, I've pretty much anywhere I go they know me but it's no big deal because I, I shop and do things that everybody else does uh, when I'm in an area where I'm performing I obviously I you know if your picture's in the paper and people see you they recognize you but I, it's, it's odd that I get recognized on the phone so much by my voice and which which just still to this day just completely floors me because uh, I'll be calling to talk with somebody and they'll say excuse me are you Bobby Goldsburg and I'll say how did you know that? They said, I recognize your voice. I, I don't even know what to say with that stuff, because I, I didn't think I had that different a voice. From what do most people want to know when they meet you, when they see you? I guess probably one of the first questions is always about Honey, and it was Honey a true story. Did I write Honey? And I tell them that Bobby Russell wrote it. And they asked me, like you did, was it a true story, and what was it about? And uh, what did she die of? Uh, you know, just and a lot of people ask about summer the first time. Was it a based on a true story? Mu usually about the music, or yeah. they'll tell me they say I used they used to watch my television show all the time, or they remembered this, or they remember going to a concert, things like that. And how much sort of memorabilia of your career is there in your home? Not a lot. In my studio, I've got a lot of stuff that my wife keeps putting up, and I say I don't care, but I don't need. They all have a big picture of me standing there with, that was taken in the early seventies, and I say yeah, that. Why don't, why don't we put that in the closet? She said, because that's part of your life, part of your career, and I want it up there, you know. And she puts the things up, the records, the gold records, and the awards and things like that. But I don't, I don't put them all over the house because I just, it doesn't have to be on display for me to, you know, they're, they're great memories for me. I don't have to look at them every day to, to remember them. Uh, what's your favorite piece of memorabilia or, or souvenirs that you've got stashed away anywhere? Probably the things like, the, of just photos of the, good friends of mine and that I've met over the years. I, I would say that's more important to me than, than an award. A songwriting award means more to me than, than a singing award, uh, simply because I feel I accomplish more by writing a song than by singing it. I think, I think Honey was such a great song that any number of singers, if you could pick a hundred people, they would have had a hit with it. I just was fortunate to get it. So I'm prouder of some of the first time having written that than I am of singing Honey. Why do you think that you personally have, have become so successful? I think television has had more to do with it than anything because from the mid-60s to the early 80s, I did just I was constantly doing television and with my own show and doing every talk show and every music show. And when I would come to England, I would do Top of the Pops and Jukebox Jury, whatever shows were on there. So I think people remember you from, from television maybe longer than they do from, uh, from records. And... Uh, Having the combination of the two, I think that has, has a lot to do with it. There's a, a singer who I won't mention, but he, I was recently doing a, an interview, and they brought him up, and they said, why do you think he hasn't remained as big as you, even though he probably had more hits? I said, well, I think he chose 
for whatever reason, not to do as much television as I did, I think, and plus the type songs. Uh, a lot of times, I mean, up until Honey, the songs I was doing were pretty much what you'd call teeny bopper records, and then Honey took me into a different group of people because I, I started do, getting in a, a, a more of an adult crowd as well as the teen, teenagers, and I think that can sustain a career longer. So I think it was a combination of all those things. Do you think you've been given the credit that you deserve as an artist? That's just a matter of opinion, I guess. Some people probably say that I'm bigger than I should have, should have ever been. <laughs> but, uh, I don't know. I, I, I leave that to the, to the critics. Uh, some may think I haven't got enough credit, and some may think I'm overrated. I never think about that. Do you think you'll ever actually retire and do nothing, or are there lots of things you still want to achieve? There are lots of things that I want to do. It's not so much as an achievement. It's just things I enjoy doing, and I enjoy writing. I enjoy the... I enjoy performing, and uh, I also just enjoy my wife and I traveling and, and, and doing things that we enjoy doing. So there's, I don't know that I'll ever retire simply because I'm, I'm always, my mind's always working. I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I've got another idea. So as long as the ideas keep coming, I'll keep, I'll keep working on them. Will you be releasing any more studio albums of your own material rather than greatest hit stuff? Probably not in the near future because I don't know that, uh, you know, right now I'm not with a label and I'm not pursuing that. If somebody wants to do that, I will think about it. But right now, I mean, I would just be doing it for my website or something. And I don't really, uh, I mean, with, between I've got a Christmas album and a Greatest Hits CD and I've got a DVD from my television series and music video and things like that. So I think that's enough for now. And if, if, if uh, enough people want to hear me do something new, I may go in the studio. I've, I've written a few new things that I've done in my studio that I enjoy doing everything where, I, where I, now with the technology I can do that so eventually I may have enough things to say hey this, this would make a good album and I'll, and I'll pursue it. Do you mind the fact that in territories like this you'll always be most remembered for hits like Honey and some of the first time? Not at all. I think uh, if I'm remembered for anything that's good. <laughs> How do you want people to remember you after you've gone? Well, uh, hopefully they'll remember me first as a writer and then as a, as a singer. And uh, unfortunately, there are a lot of great talents who fell on hard times for whatever reason with, like we talked about earlier, with drugs and drinking or whatever. And, and unfortunately, that's the thing that they were going to be remembered for. A lot of the, There's a lot of great talents that went down the tubes early in life because they OD'd on drugs or, or, or booze and things like that. And it's a shame that they're remembered for that. So hopefully I'll be remembered as somebody who who wrote good songs and made good records. Well, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Uh, my pleasure. I've enjoyed it. <laughs>